Bible or pull out your smartphone and turn to Luke 15 if, if you can. And I'm ask Steffi Headland to come up and read for us uh, Luke 15, uh, beginning at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thanks. It's God's word. It's... uh you know, even if you've been in church for a while, or even if you have almost no experience with church stuff at all, uh, you probably know this story, right? It's a very, very famous, well-known story, the story of the, the prodigal son. Uh, Charles Dickens once said that it was the greatest short story ever written. Uh, so, if, so in our series in the parables, if this is so well-known and it's been heard so many times, why bother picking this one when there's so many other parables we could be talking about, right? Well, as I was thinking about that, I really felt like, I think this this, this parable is really has a powerful message. I think it's really timely for us as a church family. But also because I think this is one of those parables where we easily see a little bit of it and miss the other half. 
I know I did that for most of my growing up years, just missed a lot of what was going on, going on in this parable. And I think many other people do too. We, we miss something. And so this morning, I really want to invite us to come to this parable, maybe with fresh eyes, and to ask if God might help us really dig in and see what's going on here. Because I think it's going to show us something really powerful about God, but also I think God's going to use it to challenge our own hearts. And I think a big key to that is to realize that the story of the prodigal son is not really the story of the prodigal son. It's a tale of two sons. And that's what we're going to really dig in to look at. But let me pray before, before we jump in. Father, I pray that you would meet us this morning and you would speak through your word. Because if you don't speak, these are just empty words. And if your Holy Spirit doesn't help us to see and to hear, then we'll walk away unchanged. But I pray that you would be at work powerfully so that we would be transformed and changed to be more like you for our good and your glory. Amen. Well, as, as we jump into this parable, the, the first thing I want us to think about is actually the importance of context. I think it's one of those things that we often forget as we're studying the Bible, just how important context is. Because oftentimes when we hear parables, we, we, we just hear them just read. And we forget that they were actually told at a particular time to a particular audience. And thankfully, actually, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has given us that context. He's told us when and why Jesus actually shared this parable. So I'm actually going to read the first ten verses of the chapter, which sets up then the story of the, the prodigal son. So listen along for a minute. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who are righteous who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. So we hear, we hear the context. And this is really, really helpful because one of the things we see right away in verse 1 is that Jesus is not primarily telling this parable to invite sinners, people who have disobeyed God's law, to come and find repentance in him. That's not the primary point. Because actually in verse 1, they were already doing that. People who had wandered away from God were already coming to Jesus. They were, they were coming. They were gathering. The problem is not there. Which makes me wonder, too, like, maybe we should ask that question of, do sinners draw near to us? But that's, maybe we'll talk more about that. But the real problem actually shows up in verse 2, okay? As in verse 2, what happens is the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The problem 
that Jesus is then going to say in verse 3, so, he told them this parable, is grumbling. Grumbling from the moral religious leaders of the day that Jesus is welcoming and eating with sinners and tax collectors. And I think it's good for us to pause here for a moment and just think about who these scribes and Pharisees are. Because I think if you're going to do like a movie trailer of like the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you'd have like Jesus and it'd be like dark, foreboding music whenever the Pharisees show up in the trailer, right? Like Jesus versus the Pharisees. But, but back in that day, the Pharisees were not viewed as the bad guys. They're not viewed as the bad guys. We miss that. The, the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes were people that spent their time studying God's word, the Old Testament, interpreting it, teaching it to the people so that they could obey the law. And the Pharisees were the people's party, really. They, they were guys that were so zealous for the law because they said, look, 600 years ago, we lost our country, went into exile because we disobeyed the law. So we're never going to disobey the law again. We're always going to do what's right for God. That doesn't sound so bad, right? And these guys were so serious about it that they, they added even traditions in to protect even like if the lines here, we're going to draw it here so we don't even get close to there. And they were really big about, especially in the laws of what's clean and unclean, because back then you had to be clean to enter the temple. So they said, we're not even going to hang out with those who potentially could be unclean. And sinners and tax collectors definitely were unclean. So you do not hang out with them. And if Jesus wanted to teach them, maybe that's okay. But the real complaint here is that he receives them and eats with them. That is not okay. How can Jesus hang out with those unclean sinners? That was their complaint. And if you read the whole Gospel of Luke, you, you, you always see that they seem to be on the outside and these sinners keep being on the inside. I mean, what's up with that? They're the good, moral, religious leaders of the day. And yet Jesus is hanging out with these unclean sinners. And to maybe feel the weight of it, it would maybe be like if like Jesus was here today and you felt like you were, we're all hanging out on the outside and Jesus is receiving and eating with sex offenders. Like that category of person, like we don't touch those people in our culture. And I mean, like that's bad. Like we stay away from them. And yet Jesus is welcoming them and receiving them and eating with them. I mean, like, wait a minute, Jesus, what, what's up with that? Like, we're, we're the good religious people. Why is he hanging out with, with them? And there's this problem that they have. But Jesus' problem is that they're upset about that. He's not okay with them being bothered by his extending of grace to people they think shouldn't get grace. Do you see how already, even just looking at the first two verses, we're starting to shift what maybe the parable is primarily about. Is it about welcoming those unclean sinners in? Or is the parable going to be challenging the people that get grumpy about it? And I think it's good for us to stop here, even early in listening to this parable, and ask the question, are our hearts in some way like the Pharisees? Are there points where we go, but Jesus welcomes and saves them? That doesn't seem very fair. He spends time with them, whether they're, whoever they are, whether, whatever category fits your brain. It's like, man, Jesus would save and love like people that are like, pro-choice or who are racist. or He does that, and there's something in your heart 
that when you see certain people get welcomed in by Jesus, you go, I don't like that. And if you're feeling any of that or have felt that, then maybe it's a good indication that we need to slow down and realize that maybe this story has a lot more to say to us than we maybe first thought. Because Jesus is not okay with us grumbling at his extending of grace. But not only does, does the context help that, but, but I love paying attention to the structure. Whenever I'm studying a passage, I'm always trying to ask, how, how do the parts fit together? How, what, what's the structure? What's going on in terms of the parts connecting together, the overall patterns, frameworks? And, and what does that say about what's important? Because if you look at a building, just by looking at its outward structure, you can often tell what it's used for, right? Structure shows purpose. And here, and you, you might have heard it when we read the stories, there's this very straight-up structural pattern. Something is lost. Something is found. There's rejoicing over that, and an invitation to rejoice. And then there's an application. And it's the same that happens all three stories. Because really, verse 3, Jesus says, he told them this parable. It's one parable in three parts. It's not three separate parables. It's one parable in three parts, making the same point over and over and over again. It's like he's hitting this repetition, but with increasing intensity. And the point is, God loves to welcome and save sinners. You see it in verse 7 at the end of the first part. He says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 32, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you see that repetition? Jesus Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees and us, this is what God is like. He rejoices over sinners repenting and coming home. This is God's heart. And that starts to maybe show that Jesus understood the root problem of these grumblers. They had a bad view of God which is why he tells so many stories, correcting their view of God. So let me ask you this question. What is your view of God? If someone was to ask you, describe God to me in a word or in a phrase, how would you describe him? I know for me growing up, the answer was clear. Judge. He's holy. I'm not. I have to keep his rules, and if I don't, He's going to get me. And there's something true about that, but that's not the dominant image of God in Scripture at all. My view of God needed to change, and so did the view of God of the Pharisees. Because Jesus is saying, look, no, God is a God who loves to welcome sinners. He loves, loves, loves to see sinners that way. To save them, to welcome them home. And so we need to really pay attention, zone in here, to what is the view of God that Jesus is presenting. And I love how he builds the same picture three different times and with greater intensity. So look at verse 4 and 5 with me. He starts out first saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the ninety-nine? So here you have one out of a hundred sheep go missing. And the shepherd goes to look for it. And, and, and maybe you can picture, right? There's, there's this big group of sheep and one of them being dumb and stupid has wandered off and is lost because they can't find their way home. And the shepherd goes searching. You can imagine staff in hand. He's walking over the hills. He's looking around every corner. He's got his eyes roving the horizon, looking for that sheep. And finally, he finds it. 
and it's exhausted from its wandering. So even though he's probably tired from all his searching, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and brings it home. And Jesus says, what shepherd wouldn't do that? And God is the great shepherd, so of course he would do that. And then he goes on, though, in verse 8 and says, what woman having ten silver coins if she loses one coin? So now it's not one out of a hundred. No, he's up the ante. Now it's one out of ten. What woman who loses a silver coin wouldn't light her lamp and sweep and look under the carpet and behind the couch cushions, right? And like looking for that silver coin. Every wise woman would do that. And how much more if God is the fountain of all wisdom, how much more would he come looking for those things that have his image on them, like a coin? And then look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now it's not one out of a hundred. Now it's not one out of ten. Now it's one out of two. Go up the ante again. And now it's not an object. It's not an animal. It's a person. And not just any person, but family. And you don't have to be of first century Jewish culture to know that if a son goes to his father and says, hey, dad, I know I'm supposed to get inheritance money from you when you die, but I'd like it now, that that's kind of insulting, right? I mean, that's, that's harsh, right? And then it's a shame-honor-based culture, much more than ours is. And then to top it off, it's not like the dad has money in the bank. No, it's an agrarian culture. Your wealth is your farm and your animals. So the dad literally had to sell part of his farm away to give the son money. So now he's got less of a farm until he dies. Think about how painful that would be to lose a son that way. The pain is greater. The loss is greater. And because it's not just an object or a sheep, but it's a person who can make real choices, the degree to which they get lost is also greater, because the son is making choices. He decides that life in his father's house, under his father's rules, isn't as preferable as to living life his way. I want to go out and do what I want. Isn't that the, the tone of so often in our culture, I mean, even our own hearts often? I just want to live life my way, fully free, no boundaries, no limits, and where does it end up? Well, he took a journey into a far country, verse 13 says, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Here's where every road that wanders away from God the Father leads to, eventually. Emptiness, brokenness, lostness, rock bottom. And for him, he's at the bottom. He's, he's a Jew. Pigs are unclean. Feeding pigs, and not just feeding pigs, but so hungry that he wishes he could eat the pig's food. I don't know how much lower you can sink, right? Like the, the degree of lostness here is, is huge, and right then, in verse 17, something changes. He comes to himself and says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish here with hunger? 
suddenly maybe living life under dad's roof and his ways isn't so bad because even the servants there are treated better than this. Need has awoken in him a realization that maybe life his way isn't the best. And maybe some of you can relate to that, either in your past or currently, where you have hit rock bottom by living life your own way and saying no thanks to God, and you've realized or are realizing that it is not a good spot to be. And God can often use that to awaken you to turn and head back home. And this isn't just like, I'm broken, I'm needy, help me, God. This, he's, he's really repentant. Because look at verse 18 and 19. As he's thinking about arising and going home, he says, this is what I'm going to plan to say to my dad, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, I've sinned. I've done wrong. It's not just that I'm needy. I've actually done something wrong, and I recognize this. And I didn't just sin against you, Father, but I sinned against heaven, against God. And I realized there are consequences for my sin. And yet, I'd still rather head home. And so he turns. He turns from living life his way to head back home. And that's what repentance is. It's turning to the Father. And I'm sure that was a long, long, long walk home. Probably several days' journey. He's got no sandals, we learn later. And he's probably playing over and over in his brain, right? What's my father going to say? What's he going to do when I get home? But I love this line from a Mumford and Son song. It's not the long walk home that changes this heart, but the welcome it receives at the restart. And what a welcome he receives. Because look at verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You, you can imagine the father, right? He's maybe every day at lunch break, at the end of the work day, going out maybe to the edge of his property, looking down that road, just hoping he's going to see his son come home. And then one day, there's his son on the road. And he doesn't wait, he runs. In that culture, that's embarrassing. Patriarchs of families don't run. And he runs, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and, and he welcomes him home. Like, picture every cool video you've seen on Facebook of, like, the soldiers returning home and surprising the family, right? And, like, the family, like, bursts out in tears, and they're hugging him, and there's this huge celebration, right? But change one thing. The soldier's not coming home as a hero. He's coming home in chains because he was a traitor. And two MPs are next to him. And he comes into the airport, and no one wants to greet that soldier because he's a traitor. But his father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. and says, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad. That's the love of the father. As every story is ramped up the lostness and the cost, it's ramped up God the father's love for finding the lost thing. And when the son says in verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. The father cuts off his apology at that point. And he says, bring the best robe and the ring. and Put sandals on his feet. He says he's not worthy to be called my son, but I'm going to give him all the things that mark him as my son. I'm going to treat him as my son. And he calls the servants and says, kill the fattened calf. We are throwing a party and we are celebrating. And this 
This is, this is amazing. Because for the father to welcome back the son as a hired servant would have been kindness that the son did not deserve. But he doesn't welcome him back as a servant. He welcomes him back as a son. It is completely unfair in the best possible way. The beauty of the Father's grace is that it makes life unfair. Do you see God this way? Is that your view of God the Father? Have you tasted His embrace as all of us wander need to come home. If you haven't, you can. You just need to turn from life your way to see the Father. And he welcomes you. That's the heart of the Father. In all three stories, we've seen lost and then found, and God's joy over it. But here's where it goes up another level and is surprising. God is not content with just rejoicing over sinners. He wants to share that joy. His joy is so great that he needs to have other people share in the joy with him. Look at verse 6. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 9. And when she is found, the woman finding the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And the father, in verses 23 and 24, says, Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's not enough just to rejoice. He needs to share that joy. He wants to invite others to share that joy with them. Killing the fattened calf, they didn't eat a lot of beef in those days. That was expensive. He is throwing a party beyond parties to celebrate. And here... If the last story was following every other pattern, we would then hear the next words, just so, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That was the pattern with the first two, right? But it doesn't do that here. Now we get the surprise. Jesus has been telling the same story over and over again, and this time he breaks it to draw our attention. says, wait a minute, something different is going to happen here. Because there's not just one lost son, there's two lost sons. Maybe you think, well, loss seems a bit harsh. I mean, verse 25 says he's in the field by home. But he's outside the party. He's not celebrating with the father. He's not in the home. He is outside. He is lost as well. And he's angry. He's bitter. When he he hears the music and he asks the servant what's going on, the servant says, "Your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Verse 20, it says, he was angry and refuse to go in. And on top of that, then the father has to come out and entreat him. He shames his father. He makes his father leave the party where he's host to come out to deal with his anger. That is not a son who loves the father. Because he doesn't love what the father loves. And now we get to the heart of the story because now in verse 29 and 30, he tells us exactly why he's angry. He says, he answered the father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, doesn't call him brother, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
You see what he's saying? It's not fair. I worked so hard for you all these years, and I've gotten nothing. And this scumbag who runs off and comes home, you just give him this fattened calf. That's not fair. You haven't even given me a goat. I've worked hard, and he's wasted everything. This is not fair. Do you feel some of that from the older brother, maybe? I can relate to that a little bit. That doesn't seem fair on the surface, right? And Jesus is putting the complaint of the Pharisees right here in the story and saying, this is the real issue. But Jesus already prepped us to be provocative because back in verse 7, he says this, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Has anybody ever been bothered by that verse? I know I was for a long time. What's, what's the deal? Why is there more joy over the one that runs away than over the 99 righteous that stay faithful? That's what I thought. Why is there more joy? That doesn't seem fair that the one who runs away gets the joy. What's going on, Jesus? But it's helpful to remember our context, right? Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees. The Pharisees that have already basically told Jesus, we don't need you. We're not sick. We don't need a doctor. Jesus is not saying here, there's more joy over someone that is a sinner that comes home than over someone who, like, early in life trusts in Jesus and follows him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's more joy over a sinner that, that repents than over 99 people who think they're so righteous they don't even need to repent. Now, if those 99 righteous people realize they're not righteous and they need to repent, he's going to rejoice over them too. Because that's God's heart. He's always rejoicing over sinners. But because they've said, we're righteous, not like the tax collectors and sinners, we worked hard and never broke any of your laws, not like the younger brother, they have put themselves in a spot where they are unable to repent. And so God cannot rejoice over them. They've got a wrong view of themselves as better than everybody else. Well, maybe I'm a sinner here or there, but not like them, God. I'm better than them, so I'm more deserving of your grace. And they also have a wrong view of God, because, I mean, look at, look at the older brother. He's, as he's talking about the father, he's saying things like, I worked hard, you never gave me anything. That's, that's not the view of God as a father. It's the view of God as a boss. I worked hard, and didn't even get what I want, and somebody who didn't work gets something better than they deserve. That's not fair. What the, what the older brother is looking for is karma. Karma says you get what you deserve. Jesus says if you trust in me, you get better than you deserve. That's the gospel, not karma. And because they've got a wrong view of themselves as not being a sinner, because they have a wrong view of God as someone who just pays out what we earn, the older brother is outside of the party. But amazingly, the father is inviting him back to because when the younger son came home and he looked for him and ran to him, the father left the party to come to the older brother. When the younger son said, I'm not worthy to be a son, and he gave him all the signs of sonship, he says in verse 31 to the older brother, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. You're my son. You're not my slave. All you had to do was ask. It was yours. He affirms him as a son. 
In verse 32, he says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the implication is, just, just come into the party with us. You don't have to be outside. You can come celebrate with us. If you just drop your pride and acknowledge that you too are a recipient of my undeserved love, you can come and join the party. You don't have to stay outside. So what does the older brother do? It ends. doesn't tell us. I mean, the story, it's like, it's like watching your favorite like, Netflix show, and they end a season with like a cliffhanger, and then like next September, like, it's like, NBC has canceled funding for this show. Sorry. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, what happens? Like, I want to, there's a cliffhanger here, like, does the older brother enter the, the feast? Does he, does he repent? Like, what happens? What, 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 like, Charles Dickens says this is the best story ever? It doesn't even have an ending. What kind of story is that? What's going on, Jesus? Well, Jesus is pretty intentional. He's left it on a cliffhanger because for his original audience, it was up for them to decide. He said, okay, Pharisees, I wrote you into the story. You're the older brother. Now I'm asking you, what do you want to do? Do you want to come into the feast? You're welcome. Or do you want to stay outside and grumble? Your choice. And the Holy Spirit speaking now to us through the scripture says the same thing. It says, okay, when you see God saving people, you don't feel like deserve it. And when you have this smug, like, well, I'm better than them. I don't know why God's being kind to them. You get a choice. You can grumble and stay outside the feast. Or you can say, wow, God has been so kind to me. And he's being so kind to them. That's awesome. Let's celebrate. What are you going to do? You're in the story. You get to write the ending. How do you want to write it? That's the question. And what's also cool, though, is there's one more step I think we need to take to, to finish. And it's this. This story is in Luke's gospel, not the end of the gospel. There's more to come in this gospel. And it's really interesting that in all three stories, there's a searching that goes on to some degree, right? The first story, the shepherd goes after the sheep. The woman goes after the lost coin. But in the third story, while the father waits and welcomes him, there's no diligent searching for the younger brother. That actually should have been the role of the older brother. He should have left to go after him. And when the younger brother's welcomed back into the family, when the father sold the land, what was left was the older brothers. By inviting the younger brother back in, now the older brother has to share that part of the property now with the younger brother again. So it's going to cost him something for the younger brother to be invited back in. And the Pharisees, as religious leaders, should have been the ones pointing people to Jesus. They studied the very scriptures that pointed to Jesus, but they didn't. But God's not surprised. All the way back in Ezekiel 34, talking about shepherds back then who were failing to point his people in the right way, God says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I come to call my sheep. And there is a cost to inviting them back into the family because of their sin. And I'll pay it with my life. And that's how it will be fair. 
because sin won't go unpunished. I'll take the punishment. And there is an older brother who actually comes looking for the younger brother. It's Jesus. He is the older brother that left the father's home, came to earth to dwell amongst us, and pay the cost to welcome us home. And it's because Jesus shared the father's heart. And that's why sinners were drawn to Jesus, because they sensed that. They sensed that he actually shared God's radical, crazy, outrageous love for sinners who repent. And so they came to him. So, do they come to us? Are we more like the older brother in the story? Or more like the true elder brother, Jesus? Which one are we? Because if we, you know, are building here in a new community, if we want to be a place known as welcoming, if we want to be a place that draws sinners to come, we have to share God's heart for the lost. And that's why Jesus is not okay with people having grumbling attitudes towards sinners coming home. That poisons the community. So if we want to have that kind of heart, we need to first know that we're sinners and experience the Father's love for us, but then say, that so changed me that now I'm going to rejoice too. So if different people came than you would normally like, if there were a, if there a coworker or a neighbor you really struggled with and somehow God got a hold of their life and they started coming here, would your response be joy? Or, or would your response be, man, I've got to deal with them on Sunday now too? Like, what's, what's your heart? Jesus' heart, God's heart is clear. He loves to pursue, not just passively wait, but pursue lost sinners and call them to him. Is that our heart, fine family? Let me pray. Father, thank you that when we were not looking for you, you sent your son to come looking for us. Your word says that in this is love, not that we have loved God, that he loved us and sent his son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin. So Father, would we just be moved today by your word to remember your great heart of love towards us? Would we run to the Father? And would we share the Father's heart, remove our pride, remove our self-righteousness, Remove our grumbling and give us hearts to overflow with your love and grace. Amen.